I'm going to ask you to take your Bible this morning to James' letter. We are uh, still beginning the journey. Last week we started on a journey. James is our guide and he is taking us on a trip through five chapters that are designed to cultivate in us a living and dynamic faith that we can display for a dying world or to a dying world. And so as we uh, look at now the first section of the journey, uh, let me just remind you that James is writing to a group of people very early on in the history of the Christian church. This is not just a book that is designed to help you at the beginning of your own personal journey. This was a book that James was writing at the very beginning of the journey of the church of Jesus Christ. You'll remember 15 years earlier, events began to happen in Jerusalem that stunned everybody. Jesus of Nazareth had made claims to be the Messiah promised and prophesied by the Old Testament and had done works and miracles to confirm and to affirm all of that. And there were men and women who witnessed that and the Spirit of God at work in their life caused them to actually believe the claims and embrace the truth and become loyal and committed followers of Jesus. James, however, was not one of them. You remember as the next brother in Jesus' earthly family, a family of seven children, James being the one immediately under Jesus, James for his entire life and for Jesus' entire earthly ministry rejected his claims and resisted his own brother. And then after the resurrection, the Lord appeared to him personally. And James's eyes were opened and he saw the truth about who his brother really was. And he embraced the claims and he became a devoted follower of Jesus, not as a brother, but as his Lord and as his Savior. And you know the story, James soon became the pastor of a growing church. The very first church in the world was the church that began at Jerusalem. And immediately after the events of the resurrection and after the day of Pentecost, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ began to explode. So that within a matter of months, there were 5,000 believers in Jerusalem who had come to hear the truth, embrace the truth, and were committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was an amazing time, and it was an amazing story. But by Acts chapter 8, a great persecution had arisen, because not everybody received the claims about Jesus Christ well. In fact, if you were a Jew living in Jerusalem, more likely than not, when you began to really hear what was being said about Jesus... And when you began to think about the implications of a Messiah that had been crucified, you were absolutely scandalized by that. You were horrifically offended. And so it wasn't long in Jerusalem before a great persecution arose. This is exactly what we read in Acts chapter 8 verse 1. And as a consequence of the great persecution, many of the believers that were in this first church were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And they went everywhere. And when they arrived at their new place, they brought with them the incredible message, the wonderful truth of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the good news about the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And just like it happened in Jerusalem, it happened in all of these new places. People began to hear and people began to see because the Spirit of God was at work in them and they began to embrace what they were hearing and coming to understand about this wonderful new message that had arrived in their city. But it wasn't long after the arrival for many of these people that the same persecution that arose back in Jerusalem followed and arose in their new place. But this time it wasn't just coming from the Jews who were scandalized by the idea that their Messiah would be crucified by the Romans. 
Persecution also began to arise against them from a brand new source, from the Gentiles that were in the cities where they were because the idea of a resurrected person was absolutely ludicrous. And so all of a sudden, these believers who had already had to flee one city because of persecution found themselves in a new city facing the same persecution all over again. I just want you to think for a minute about what it would be like for you if you had to start over and you lost everything in the process. I mean, what would be going through your mind? What would happen to you as a family if if you woke up and in the course of a month, you lost your job, you lost your home, you were driven out of the place where you grew up and where you lived, you lost all of your relational network, and you had to flee for your life to a new place and start all over again with no resources, very little money, and no network. What would be going through your mind if you actually had to go through that? And just as you were getting settled in your new place, and just as things were starting to make sense, and just as life was sort of becoming a new normal for you, the same kind of persecution that drove you out of your first place began to rise up against you. And the reason for all of that persecution was directly tied to your faith, your belief, your having embraced a message about Jesus of Nazareth, that he was the son of God, the savior of the world, and the Lord of your life. What would you do? Would you hold on to that faith? Would you keep displaying that faith? Would you mute the display of that faith? Would you sort of silence yourself just to make sure that you didn't get driven out of this place again? And that is precisely what is happening to the readers that James is writing to. And he is encouraging them that what they most need to do in their new place, what they most need to guard, what they most need to cultivate is a living, dynamic faith that they can display, just like they displayed it in Jerusalem, that they can display to the people who live around them and do life with them in their new city. And James says, let me tell you what this faith looks like. And as we go through the book, we're going to see him unpack this. He says, your living faith needs to be wholehearted. And that means it's genuine. It's real. It needs to be single focused. That means it's committed. There's no backing away. There's no backing up. There's no muting of this. It needs to be wholehearted. It needs to be single focused. It needs to be genuine and committed. And then it needs to be fully trusting. It needs to be dependent. And so that's where James is going. He's literally going to lay out for you what it looks like to be true to the faith that you have embraced in a way that it is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting. Can we say that together? Let's say those three words. Our faith needs to be wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting. Let's say that again. Our faith needs to be wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting. Can we do it one more time just to make sure we grasp it? Our faith, your faith, my faith needs to be fully trusting. And that's where James is headed. We're going to say that together over the next couple of months so that it really becomes part of how we think about the book of James. In other words, when you open James up from now on for the rest of your life, I want you to think about the kind of faith that James is encouraging you to cultivate a faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully dependent. So how does James do that? How does James talk to us about that? And and so here's what James does. He is going to introduce two wisdoms. If you're going to have a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith, you're going to have to build it on something. And James says there are two foundations upon which you can build that faith. There is wisdom that comes from above, and there is wisdom that is all around you. Wisdom that comes down from above in your Bible is described in Psalm 1 verse 2 as the law of the Lord. 
And that's what James is going to say. You've got, you've got two foundations that you can, you can build on. One is wisdom that comes down from above, and the other is the wisdom that you get from everybody else uh, that, that's living around you, whatever they think, their counsel, their way of living, their value system, the way that Psalm 1, verse 1 describes that way of wisdom. It is the counsel of the ungodly, the way of sinners, and the values and, and, the, and the beliefs of the scorner. And James says you can build on one of the, those two options. And, and those two wisdoms are going to lead to two ways. There are two ways in which you can live your life. And however you choose to live your life, whatever way you live is going to be shaped by the wisdom that you have chosen. And so those wisdoms lead to two ways that lead to two allegiances. If you're on this way, you have this allegiance. And if you're on this way, you have this allegiance. And the way James talks about these two allegiances is this, you're either a friend of God or you're a friend of the world. So a, a faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting is a faith that is built on wisdom from above that leads to a way of life that is fully aligned and loyal to an allegiance with God because you have become the friend of God. And James is going to say, I'm going to introduce you to some of God's friends in this book. I'm, you're going to meet Abraham, for example, and then you're going to meet Rahab. And then you're going to meet the prophets, and then you're going to meet Job, and then you're going to meet Elijah. And so there, there are these examples of people just like us who had to decide which wisdom and which way and which allegiance they were going to embrace. Were they going to be a friend of God, or were they going to be a friend of the world? And James says, now, all of this is going to come down to the state of your heart. What is going on in your heart? Is it double-minded or single-focused? Is your heart double-minded or single-focused? There's a fatal flaw that James is going to point to, and it's really the heart of the book. I mean, when Pastor James is writing to these sheep that were part of his congregation that have been scattered, he is saying to them, I am very concerned about a fatal flaw that is is actually coming up in your lives, and it is the flaw, it is the danger, it is this deadly spiritual condition of being double-minded. And he's going to talk a lot about double-mindedness in the book because double-mindedness is the enemy of a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. And so that's where James is going. And so in our text this morning, we are going to look at the first 12 verses, and they're divided into three segments. In, in verses 2 through 4, he's going to talk about the reality of something that God uses to reveal something about the condition of our faith. Is our faith wholehearted? Is it single-focused? Is it fully trusting? And James says, well, let's Let's examine that and see. And that's what he's going to do in verses 2 through 4. And then in verses 5 through 8, that's the second section of this portion of James. He's going to reveal a wisdom that is available. This is the first time in James that you are going to be introduced to a wisdom that is going to shape your faith. If you desire to have a, a wholehearted Single-focused, fully trusting faith, James says, here's the wisdom that you need. What, what was revealed in verses 2 through 4 is now going to be answered in verses 5 through 8 with wisdom. And then in verses 9 through 11, he's going to introduce a test. He's going to say, okay, we've been talking theologically and we've been talking spiritually. Let's bring all of this right down to where we all live and let's put it to the test. How do you feel about poverty and how do you feel about wealth? What is your perspective on wealth and on poverty? Because your perspective is going to come out of a wisdom and and that 
perspective, whatever it is, is going to reveal whether your faith is wholehearted, whether your faith is single focused, and whether your faith is fully dependent on God, or whether or not you are depending and looking to something else to do what God has promised you to do. And then verse 12 is an announcement, and it's simply this, there is a blessed man, and the blessed man is the one who passes the test and the blessed man gets a reward. So that's the flow of the 12 verses that we're looking at. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look very quickly at six ideas that James is going to pull out of these 12 verses that are designed to help us develop a living faith for a dying world that is wholehearted, it is single-focused, and it is fully trusting. Can we say that one more time? I know we just said it a few minutes ago, but let's say it again. A living faith for a dying world is a faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting. Wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting. And so how does James talk to us about that? Well, notice that the first thing that James does in verses two through four is he lays out a spiritual objective. There's something that James is going after, and this is what he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know there's something that you are aware of, there's something that you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be what? Perfect. That you may be complete lacking in nothing. So James says, here's my objective. My objective is that your faith would be perfect. And the idea there is not sinlessness. James is actually going to tell you what he means by perfect. He's going to say, I want your faith to be complete. I want it to not be missing anything. In other words, I, I want you to have a, a, a powerful, living, dynamic faith as opposed to the empty religion that he describes in verse 26. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is what? It's worthless. It's, it's, it's just vain. It's, it's, it's weightless. It, it has no power to it. And James says there, there is something that will damage the credibility of your faith. There is something that will damage the vitality of your faith. And it is when your faith becomes weightless, when it has no life, when it has no strength, when it is lacking something. And the heart of all of that for James is going to be this idea of double-mindedness. When you have a divided heart, when you have a double-mindedness in your soul, it damages the vitality and it destroys the credibility of your faith. And James says, and I know that's shocking to you. I'm going to say something even more shocking when we get to chapter four, but I know it's shocking to you. But let me tell you how I know that this is going on in your life. Let me tell you how I know that some of you really are double-minded. Let me tell you how I know that some of you really do have a faith that is deficient. Some of you are are self-deceived about sin and temptation. That's what he's going to say to them in verse 16. This is how I know that this is going on in your midst. Some of you are deceiving yourselves about temptation. Some of you are hearing the word and, and you celebrate it and then you walk out and you don't do it. You are hearers but not doers. Some of you are exhibiting ungodly partiality toward others in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. For some of you, you have a really good confession, but your life does not display the works of faith. And that's in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. James says, let me just talk to you straight about what comes out of your mouth, how you use your tongue. You know how I know you have a divided heart? Because you have a double tongue. You have a double-minded heart because you have a, and the reason I know that is because what's coming out of your mouth, one, one time we meet you and there are these wonderful blessings that are coming out of your mouth. And the next time we run into you, your mouth is saying things that are horrifically offensive. And this is because 
you have a damaged faith. You have embraced and are displaying wisdom from below instead of wisdom from above. In chapter three, verses 13 through 18, you presume on God. You think you can go do whatever you want with your life. You can go to this city, you can go to that city. There is no thought for the will of God in your daily life. That's in chapter five, verses one, or in chapter four, rather, verses 13 through 17. And some of you are even living in ways that are taking advantage of one another. And that's in chapter five, verses one through six. That's why James says, I know exactly that we have a problem because all of these symptoms are in your life and they are pointing back to something that is going wrong with your faith. And James says, my objective is to bring you to a place where you are restored to a living, dynamic faith that can make a difference in a dying world. My objective is that your faith would not be lacking, that it would be complete, that it would be strong and vital, that it would be wholehearted, that it would be single-focused, that it would be fully trusting. Now, that brings us to the second thing that James is going to point out, and that is this. How does God accomplish this? And God accomplishes this through a very surprising means. He uses trials of various kinds. When you are a believer living in a pagan context under pressure, God is going to use that pressure to reveal things about you and about your faith. When, when James is talking about faith, by the way, let, let's make sure we understand what he means. He's not just talking about the content of what they believed. In fact, I, I don't think James is worried that there's some doctrine that they fail to believe or some doctrine that they have believed wrongly. I don't think that James is particularly worried about the content of their belief what they have professed about Jesus, what they have professed about his work, his, his atoning work, what they have professed about the resurrection. I don't think James is worried about the content of their faith. I think James is worried about whether or not they really believe what they say they believe and whether or not those beliefs are actually what they're trusting. Because whatever you're trusting is what you're going to use to build your life. If, if you really believe that Jesus Christ is coming again and has promised you a kingdom, if you really believe that, then that's what you're going to live for in this world. Correct? And that's where James is headed with all of this. And so he says that God is going to use trials in our life. He talks about the reality of trials. You are going to encounter them. And he talks about the multiplicity of them. There are going to be many of them, and they're not all going to look the same in your life. They're not going to come at the same time, and they're not going to be in the same arena. But trials are going to be the repeated way in which God cultivates in you a faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting. That's how God is going to do it. And trials have a particular reason. When we talk about a trial, we're talking about a test. We're we're talking about taking something and testing it, and, and the point of the test is to see whether it's genuine, and to see whether it's sound, and to see whether it works. If you take a brand new ocean liner that is fresh off the dock before you put three or 4,000 human lives on that ship and take them out on the ocean, you want to know that that ship is sound. And so before you ever put passenger one on that ship, there is a crew that takes that ship out for sea tests or sea trials. And they take that ship out and they put it through all of its routines. They expose it to everything they can imagine that it will be exposed to when it's actually on a journey. And they are wanting to know that that ship isn't going to cave in under pressure, that that ship is actually going to sail and to be safe and that it can actually endure whatever the sea or the ocean throws at it. And that's the point of a test that God introduces into your life. He is going to expose things about your faith. He is going to confirm things about your faith, and he is going to build things into your faith. How does God develop in us wholeheartedness? How does God develop in us 
single-mindedness, single-focused. How, do, how does God develop in us a faith that fully trusts in him? And the answer is he has to put us in a place where we have nothing else to do if we're going to be loyal to God but to trust what he said in his word. He's going to have to put us out in the ocean and he's going to have to send a storm our way and we're going to have to decide, are we going to trust the wisdom that came down from above that's contained in the law of the Lord or are we going to go looking for other wisdoms because we're afraid that wisdom isn't enough? And that's James, that's where he's headed with his readers and that's really where he's headed with us. And and he points something out that, that a test, when we go through the pressure that God introduces into our life, there is an intended result, and the intended result is perseverance, steadfastness. You can see that, can't you? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. And so James says, listen, God is going to do something unusual in order to reveal things about your faith, in order to confirm to others that your faith really is true, it's genuine, and to build things into your faith so that at the end of the day, as you live all around the world under this persecution that is driving you down, you will remain loyal as a friend of God and you will manifest a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. The kind of faith that drew me to Christ, the kind of faith that drew you to Christ. And James says there's a response to all of this. You need to evaluate trials properly. You need to think about trials in the right way. He said consider, consider. That's, that's a word that means to evaluate. That's what you do when you take stock. That, that's what you do when you sit down and, and you want to count up and you want to know exactly what's going on and you want to know exactly where you are. I mean, sometimes we have those conversations uh, as, as a couple, right? We sometimes just need to sit down at the table and we need to just clear the decks and, and we need to get whatever beverage, whether it's coffee or tea or whatever, and we just need to say, look, we need to take stock of where we are. We need to count up what is going on. We need to get a really clear picture so that we can evaluate properly. And James says, you need to take stock of the trial and you need to evaluate what it's really doing. And when you understand what a trial is really doing, instead of being something that you dread and you just endure, it becomes something that you consider as an occasion of joy. What is going to come out of this is going to be good. And then James says, you don't just need to evaluate it, you need to embrace it. He says, let, let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't try to run out from under the pressure before steadfastness has done its full work. Don't cut the trial short because you want to relieve the pressure. If you understand what this trial is doing, it is, it is confirming things about your faith. It is revealing things about your faith. And it is building things into your faith. Don't cut the trial short. Let steadfastness have its full effect. And that brings us to the third thing. Do we have in scripture examples of people who let steadfastness have its full effect? And the answer is yes. Let me give you three. In Hebrews eleven six, it says, without faith, it is impossible to do what? To please God. All right, so if you want to please God, that's really, you know, if you have a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith, the end of that faith is a life that pleases God. So if you want to please God, you have to have this kind of faith. Can we see examples of this in the Scripture? And, And let me just give you three. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, we read this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You know what's interesting? In Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, Noah is described this way. Noah was a righteous man, perfect 
in his generations. And it's the same idea that James is talking about when he says, let steadfastness have its perfecting work so that you may be perfect, complete. Here's an example in the Old Testament of somebody who was that. He was perfect. He was complete. His faith lacked nothing. And the evidence of all of that was the fact that for 120 years, he built a boat when there was no ocean to be seen. This was clearly not something that you were going to sail on in, in the river Tigris or the river Euphrates, much less the Jordan. I mean, this was a massive boat. And so all along, people are coming up to Noah and they want to know, what in the world are you doing? I mean, think about the immense amount of resources that Noah invested in building this boat. I'm sure that throughout Noah's life, that boat became known by many things. Maybe it was called Noah's Folly. I'm sure Noah and his family had to answer more than once, why in the world are you building that boat? It's clearly not a fishing boat. It's clearly too big for you guys to just be taking a little pleasure cruise up the Euphrates because you can't even get the boat there. This is the wrong place to build a boat. This is the wrong size of a boat to build. And I have no idea why in the world you're doing this. And all Noah could say is this. God said there's a flood coming and God said to build this boat. And they're like, what's a flood? That's a word we're not familiar with. Um, Well, flood is like lots of water that rises and comes like from the sky and it comes up from the ground and, and it's just going to flood everything. And, and they're going, we've never seen a flood. We, this is my, Noah, I don't, this is crazy. And Noah said, I'm building this boat because I fear God and he told me to build it. That's what it meant for 120 years. Let me give you another example. Abraham. In Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac, and he who had received promises was in the act of offering up his only son. In verse 19, he considered, there's our word that James is talking about. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. I mean, here is Abraham who manifests unwavering belief and full-hearted trust in God's promise during an intense time that demanded everything from him. And if you want the final example, it's Jesus who manifests unwavering belief in God's character during a physically painful and emotionally devastating life-ending trial. James says, you want some models for what this looks like? It looks like Noah, who fully trusted God's words. It looks like Abraham who fully trusted God's promise and it looks like Jesus who fully trusted God's plan. Let me ask you a question. Do you fully trust God's words? That's where James is going with this. Do you fully trust God's words? No matter how hard it gets, no matter how long the trial is, no matter how hard it crushes you down, do you trust God's words? Do you trust God's promises? And do you trust God's plan? There's a fourth thing that James talks about here in this text. He says, look, God is going to use trials to build into you, to reveal the condition of your faith. He's going to build resilience into your faith. He's he's going to craft resolute conviction into your faith about God's words and God's promises and God's plans for your life. And he's going to use trials to do that. But here's what you're going to need. If you're going to navigate the trial the way Noah did, or if you're going to navigate the trial the way that Abraham did, or if you're going to do what Jesus did when Peter describes him as keeping, keeping and trusting himself, continuing to trust him, entrust himself to the one who judges justly, if you're going to do that, you're going to need a wisdom. And, and that's the fourth thing that he talks about. He talks about a spiritual requirement, wisdom from above. And look at verse five. If any of you lack wisdom, and then he immediately tells you where to go to get that wisdom. 
because there were a ton of other wisdoms available. In every one of those cities, they could go to just about any temple. They could go to just about any school of thought. They could go to any philosopher in the city, and they could get wisdom that would give them answers about how to navigate all of this pressure. And James says, if you are going to navigate life under pressure in a way that develops in you a faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting, you're going to have to go to the right source for wisdom, and the wisdom you're looking for is not coming from beneath, it is coming from above. It is the wisdom that came down from God that the psalmist in Psalm 1 verse 2 described as the law of the Lord. And James is going to remind you that this wisdom is not innate in you. You were not born with this wisdom. It is a wisdom that has to be implanted in you. It has to be received by you. That's why in in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to deliver you. James says, if you want to navigate trial in such a way that it produces what God intends to produce about your faith, you're going to need a wisdom that comes from God that you receive when it's implanted in your heart. You're going to need that kind of wisdom. And it actually produces certain qualities. Wisdom isn't just intellectual. It's not primarily just the right information. Remember we said that James is not worried that his people have believed the wrong things. He's worried about the condition of their belief. He's not worried so much about whether they have the word of God and whether that information is available to them. It is. He's worried about what that information is producing in them and why it isn't producing the things it should. It should be producing, for example, purity and peaceableness and reasonableness and graciousness and gentleness and mercy and moral goodness and impartiality and sincerity, single-heartedness. That is the mark of wisdom from above that James is going to talk about in chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. But if you go back to what we just said earlier, none of those things were true in the lives of some of these people. And that's why James has said, you're going to have to come to the right place for the right wisdom to navigate your life. And you say, well, well that, that's easy. I'll just come to the scriptures. And James says, no, there is a condition. There is a condition that, that God has placed on that wisdom working in your life. And that condition is this. You have to come without doubt. You have to come without doubt. And he's going to connect doubt to another idea. He's going to connect doubt to double-mindedness. He says the person who doubts is double-minded. So when we think about the idea of doubt, here's here's what James wants you to to catch. He He is thinking about a person who has a divided heart. The word doubt has the idea of a person trying to discern, trying to decide. I'm trying to decide something. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with a decision. I'm divided in what I am thinking. That's a doubter. So are you doubting? The idea is, are you struggling to be in or out? This is the idea. James has said, when you come to God as a believer, wanting to have wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith, you cannot come as a doubter. You cannot come as someone whose heart has not fully been set to God. You have to come like Deuteronomy chapter 6 talks about, and and like Jesus said, you have to come with a heart that loves the Lord with all of its strength, with all of its might, and with all of its force. When you have that kind of a heart and you're loyal to God, then you come to God and he says to you, I will give you insight and ability to do what I wrote down in the law of the Lord. That's the idea. So let me put it uh, in an illustration that James actually gives you here in the text. Here here is the illustration that James gives you at the end of the book. He's going to take you back to Old Testament Israel, and when you meet them, 
and, and, uh, and they're with Elijah on a mountaintop. When you meet them, they have been under extreme pressure for three and a half years. There's been no rain. Think about the impact of that drought in their life. There's been no crops. The economy is in tatters. There have been physical afflictions that have come because of this. Families have actually had deaths because of this. And there is no rain. And here's the point that we sometimes miss. God had told them exactly how to get rain. In Deuteronomy chapter 11 and in Leviticus chapter 26, God says, when you do my commandments, I will bring rain. And in Zechariah 10 verse 1, he said, ask me and I will send you rain. So here is a nation that knew exactly who would send them rain and what they had to do to get it and how they would bring their request to the one who would send them rain. And for three and a half years, there had been no rain. And some of them were wondering, hey, our God, Jehovah, we're talking to him. He's not bringing us rain. He didn't bring us rain in year one. He didn't bring us rain in year two. He didn't bring us rain in three. And and now it's halfway through year four, and we are dying. And over here are 400 priests and 450 prophets of a new God called Baal who happens to be the rain God. And all of the nations around us seem to be getting rain and they worship him. Maybe if our God isn't going to give us rain, maybe we should come and we should listen and we should worship and we should serve this God. We can still keep our national identity and be followers of Jehovah, but in the area of rain, maybe we need to add this God in. And you just saw in an Old Testament example what a double-minded, doubled heart people looks like. God isn't giving me what I, what I want. He isn't giving me what I need. And he isn't, do, he isn't doing it in my time frame. And, and I, I have a choice. I can either keep doing what God told me to do that doesn't seem to be working, or I can go over here and do something new that seems to work for others. And James says later on in the book, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And that brings us really to the fifth thing, and that is this. There is a test. There is an evaluation that he's going to say, look, you all are in cities and you are suffering. You've given everything up. You were driven out of Jerusalem. You lost your homes. You lost your jobs. You lost your savings account if you even had one. You're in a new city and the same thing is happening to you and and you are under the extreme pressure of need. And so he's going to introduce a test and it is how you consider wealth and poverty. James says, look, in in verse two, count it all joy. Consider. You know something. All right, let's take that knowledge and put it to work now in a real test that has come into your life. If you are poor and you have nothing, are you content? Are Are you rejoicing in the fact that you believe something that God has told you as true? Are you actually rejoicing in the exalted condition that you're in? Do you really believe what what Paul is going to later tell you, that you are seated in the heavenlies with Christ and that you right now have every spiritual blessing? Is that your boast? The word boast there has the idea of taking joy in. This is what I rejoice in. This is where my happiness, this is where my joy is. As, as somebody with no resources, have you rightly gone to God's word and have you evaluated it correctly? Or are you running after your own way of getting wealth? Are you doing what the guy in chapter four did? Are you running to this city and that city and doing whatever you can because you think you can gain wealth when God told you how he would give it to you? When Jesus himself said, take no thought about these matters. 
When Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he knows that you have need of food and he knows that you have need of raiment and he knows that you have need of shelter. Are you willing to trust that? Are you willing to rejoice in the exalted state that you have as a follower of Christ? And those of you in the providence of God that have money, are you rejoicing and boasting in your money or are you rejoicing and boasting in the fact that God humbled you so that you could see the truth about Jesus and you could enter in like the poor man does without any of your own resources? And the evidence of your humility is the joy you take in taking all of the wealth that God has given you and instead of using it to build your kingdom that is gonna just burn up even while you're building it, like the, like the you can see in verse 11, the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Rich man, are you rejoicing in the fact that God has humbled you so that you will see your spiritual poverty and embrace the richness of the gospel? And the evidence of that is what you do with your wealth after you realize your humility. And now instead of trying to use your wealth to build your kingdom and to secure things that God has already promised you, you're using all of that wealth to advance his kingdom and to strengthen his church and to proclaim the word. This is an amazing test because it really does speak to the very heart. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. <clears throat> you know, over the years of church history, there have always been examples of this. Imagine a young man called to ministry. He's sensing God's, he's humbled himself. He's been a believer, he's called to ministry and, and he's laboring away at preparation. He's got a young family. And he has all this pressure. God is meeting his needs, just like Matthew 6 says. God said, you know what? I'm going to give you food. I'm going to give you raiment. And I'm going to give you shelter. And God has been meeting those things. But every month, it's a struggle. It's excruciating. And one day, he gets a job offer for more money than he's ever made in his life. James says, you just entered the test. And he sits down and he starts thinking, you know, <clears throat> if I get this job, it's going to delay. It's going to maybe make a change in my plans. But, you know, it, it, it could be that I'm going to amass a small fortune. It's going to help me. I'm going to get a better house. I'm going to buy a, a better car. I'm going to be able to provide for my family. And it's going to give me a lot more money to give away. And I won't have to live the way I'm living. I'll be able to provide. I'll be able to do. I'll be able to move. And maybe there's this idea that down the road, if I just get enough money, then I can go back into ministry and I won't have to worry about having to depend on others for things that I need. I won't have to depend on a church to give me a salary. I won't have to depend on churches to send me to the mission field. I will have amassed enough money to, to meet all of the needs that I have. And so maybe that's what God is wanting me to do. And James says, you just passed through a test and it's revealing something about you. Are you going to believe God who said, I will provide for you all of those things? I'm going to give you shelter. I'm going to give you food. I'm going to give you raiment. Or are you desirous of figuring out how you can amass enough of this world's goods so you don't ever have to worry about them and you don't have to depend on that? Do you see the problem? You just found a man who has a double heart. Hey, I want to go do this for God, but I want to do it in a way that I don't have to depend the way I'm having to depend right now. Or perhaps there's a wealthy man and, and all of a sudden God starts working in his heart and, and, and he says, you know what, God, I, I, I'm going to surrender to you and, and I'm going to follow you and all of this wealth that I've been using to depend on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start using for you and I'm going to depend on you to do for me what I need to do. I'm going to depend just like the poor man depends. That's exactly what happened to a young physician many decades ago named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
And he became an incredible minister of the gospel. And that brings us to the final thing that James says. James says when you go through a test like this and you actually pass the test, there is a satisfying reward. There is true and lasting blessing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive something. He will receive something that is not available in this world. The wisdom of this world will never be able to give you this. And trust me, for all eternity, this is the thing you want. This is the thing you most desire. If you understand what James is talking about, the things that the world has to offer you that are gonna so quickly fade away, if you live for those things, there's gonna come a day when you wish you had lived for something different. There is a crown that God gives to certain people. And the crown is this, it's everlasting life. And only people who have this mark get it. Nobody else gets this crown. The only people who get this crown are people who love God. You can see it, can't you, at the end of verse 12? Which God has promised to those who love him. You can see that again in chapter two, verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So the question for you this morning is this, and it's not just for you, it's for me, it's for all of us. Do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? You say, yeah, absolutely. I've loved Christ my whole life. Of course I love Christ. Do you love Christ or do you love what Christ gives you? There's a big difference. Put differently, what will happen to your faith when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? When all of a sudden the things that you expect Jesus to do for you aren't there. And all of a sudden you find yourself out on an ocean and and you are being tested and you are looking to Jesus just like the Old Testament Israelites were looking to God and, and what you are looking for doesn't show up. And it doesn't show up in year one. And it doesn't show up in year two. And it doesn't show up in year three. And you're halfway through year four. And you're starting to wonder, maybe I'm following the wrong wisdom. James says, if you will let wisdom have its perfecting work in you, there will come a day where you will get everything that you want. It's called the crown of life. And so... James is going to ask you again, do you love God? Do you love him? Father, thank you for a text that speaks very boldly, very directly to us about the true condition of our heart. Lord, everybody in this room, I believe, would claim to love you. And I think in our own way, we we actually believe that. We actually believe that we do. And James reminds us, that into our life, you are going to bring tests frequently that are painful and prolonged and they're designed to reveal the condition of our love for you. Do we love you? Are we, are we lined up with you? Are we your friends or have we formed a friendship with the world? So Lord, I pray that what we've heard today, the word would do its work in us. I, I don't know what that work is in anybody else's life but my own. And I pray that you would do that work in me and that you would do that work in your people. Because at the end of the day, Lord, we desperately want to be a church. We desperately want to be believers with a living faith for a dying world that is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting in you and in your word. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.